Amen? Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Michael, and I'm glad to have an opportunity to open God's Word uh, together as a church family. This morning, we continue our series entitled Christ-Centered Living. Paul is igniting for us our imagination as we think about what could our lives be as we work our way through the early parts of the book of Philippians, a letter to the Philippian church. Last week we heard him say that the most important thing about living is Christ. We learned from him that his very life and his ministry reflected that truth as he endured incredible uh, difficulty for the sake of the gospel. We learned that Paul's life was motivated to... uh, to to live courageously, and it's motivating us to live more courageously in order that the greatness of Christ would be on display in and through our lives. I want you to imagine with me as we asked last week, what would that look like for us? What if we were a group of Christians on this hill who went out and lived more courageously? What would that do to our cities? What would that look like in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, and indeed in our church? If we have the same deep-seated conviction that Paul gave to us last week, that the most important thing in my life is Christ. Paul makes that declaration while he's evaluating his life, sitting, as you remember, in a Roman prison. He's waiting, awaiting a trial with two possible outcomes. Paul's either going to be released from prison, or he's going to be executed. There's a Part of him, as we read last week, that desires death. Not death as a means of escape, for God was doing amazing things through his imprisonment there uh, in Rome. The emperor's guards were coming to faith in Christ because Paul was sharing the gospel with them and they were trusting Jesus. No, his desire for death, as we learn, was born out of a desire to be in the very presence of Christ. He writes that he was torn between death and life. Death would be gained because of his increased intimacy with Christ, but life would mean more fruitful ministry. He writes that he's convinced that he will remain for the sake of the Philippian church. In the verses that we're going to look at together this morning, we learn of Paul's love and his concern for these believers. He cares deeply for them, so much so, he knows it's best for him to remain on earth in order to invest more of his life further in these Philippians. We learn that Christ-centered living results in a desire to see the gospel advance not only to the nations, as it was in Rome amongst the imperial guard, but in individual believers' life. Listen, we'll talk about it this morning. The gospel is not just for our initial salvation in Christ. The gospel is for our transformation of life. Paul knows that, and he wants to press that truth into the life of those who've come to faith in Christ, particularly here in Philippi. I want to invite you this morning to listen in on what is perhaps the most personal paragraph that Paul penned in all of the New Testament. Listen to his heart, listen to his motivation, listen to his love for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read again this week. Philippians 1, verse 20 through 26. If you found that passage, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We do that here at First Southern as a way of acknowledging that God is King and that His Word has total authority 
in our lives. And we are simply to adjust our life to His Word. Hear this personal paragraph from Paul to brothers and sisters in Christ he deeply cares about. Verse 20, I expect and I hope that I will not fail Christ in anything, but that I will have the courage now, as always, to show the greatness of Christ in my life here on earth, whether I live or die. To me, the only important thing about living is Christ, and dying would be profit for me. If I continue living in my body, I will be able to work for the Lord. I do not know what to choose, living or dying. It is hard to choose between the two. I want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is much better. But you need me here in my body. Since I am sure of this, I know I will stay with you to help you grow and have joy in your faith. And you will be very happy. You will have a grounds for boasting in Christ. That's what it means. You will have grounds for boasting in Christ Jesus when I come and I am with you again. This church is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these very personal words that Paul writes and pens to the church at Philippi. Father, there is so much contained in these words. I pray this morning that your spirit through your word, would teach us. You would bring conviction in our life. You would bring confidence in our lives. And you would bring within us a desire, Father, to grow and to have greater joy in our faith and to see that in other brothers and sisters in Christ's life. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray with great expectation. Amen. You may be seated. Well, while I'm been reading through this paragraph this week, and even this morning, my mind has flowed back to specific people who have faithfully invested their life in my life over the last 30 years. I came to faith in Christ as an eight-year-old boy, but really began to walk with the Lord in a consistent manner as a 17-year-old high school senior. I particularly remember my college pastor. His name is David. And for whatever reason, David made the decision to step into and pour into my life. He taught me the word. He invited me into his life as our friendship further developed. He encouraged me to pursue greater things in God's kingdom. He saw in me things I did not even see yet at all in myself. I was captivated by David's knowledge of the Bible. Oh my goodness, I still am. I was and am captivated by the ease in which he could explain it and make it applicable to everyday life. I was grateful for the endless afternoons of iced tea at, if it was his choice, we went to Hardee's. If it was my choice, we went to Chick-fil-A. The tea was good at either place. I'm sure I didn't fully realize what was going on at the time, but retrospectively, David was discipling me. We talked about everything. Nothing, nothing was out of bounds. Our lives began to intertwine, even our music and our our movie preferences, so I blame David to this day for my music preferences. My family's not happy with them. To this day, when I listen to folks like James Taylor and I watch Tom Hanks' movies, I do them with favorable memories. Our relationship truly grew over time. I eventually served as an intern in the church under David's leadership, and, and then I began to serve as a youth minister literally one mile down the road at another church. Our afternoon conversations didn't stop. They didn't decrease. 
the topic simply changed. David began to teach me what it meant to be a pastor in the local church. He began to teach me how to lead change in the local church. He began to teach me how to allow God to work through me to love people whom God had given me the responsibility of shepherding. All that said, I look back and I'm so thankful that my college pastor chose to remain in that little church in Forest Park, Georgia and invest his life in my life. I'm here today because a man like David chose to invest in a young man like me. Let me ask you this morning, do you remember a person who invested in you? A person who willingly came alongside of you to aid you in your walk with the Lord? Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a sibling early on, maybe it was a ministry leader, a Bible study teacher in your church, maybe it was a co-worker, a mentor of some kind of in the faith. For those of us who have had that kind of investment, listen, we are different today, right? Would you agree? We're a different person because of the time they spent with us and the time we spent with them. We are likely stronger in our faith. We're more deeply convicted about our beliefs. We're more involved in serving Christ and His church. How grateful we should be for that investment. As we press into our passage this morning, I want to challenge some of us to ask ourselves, am I spiritually investing my life into the life of others? And if not, why not? What will it take for me in 2017, what will it take for me in the next six weeks to begin to turn that pattern of my life around? And for others, perhaps, the question is a bit different. Am I seeking out that kind of spiritual investment from a godly man or woman in my life? Am I eager to grow in my faith and to have someone walk with me to help me with everyday stuff, help me connect the Bible to my way of living? Those really are the two questions we ought to walk away with this morning. With whom am I investing my life? Or am I at a place in my life where I'm in need of someone else to invest in me? And am I seeking it out? Paul's words here leave us challenged this morning. Challenged about discipleship. Challenged about spiritual growth. Even as we'll find challenged about the amount of joy that I'm experiencing, that you are experiencing in our faith, and in our daily walk. Today, our attention will be focused on the idea that Christ-centered living results in disciple-making. As we have said, Paul is evaluating his life, and he comes to the right conclusion that the best description of his life, the best way to sum up his life is is not all of his accomplishment, not all of the goals that he had set and, and brought to fruition in the planting of churches and missionary journeys and the writing of of letters and books in the New Testament. No, Paul says the best way to sum up his life, (laughs) my life, literally it says, my life is Christ. And Paul says that, church, that's the best way to sum up my life. Paul is evaluating his life. He's facing life or death. He's facing trial, release or execution. He says, when I look at all of it, I can sum in one word. It's a person. It's Christ. So for him, what the future holds must be determined by what will most honor Christ. 
And he comes to the conclusion of what that means for him in the immediate. Look again with me at Philippians 1, beginning in verse 21. To me, the only important thing about living is Christ and dying is profit for me. If I continue living in the body, I here's, here's the benefit, Paul says. As I think about my life, if, if I do get released from prison, the benefit is this. I will be able to work for the Lord I don't know what to choose, living or dying. It's hard for me to choose between the two. I want to to leave this life and I want to be with Christ. Oh my, there's a beautiful statement there, right? For the believer who breathes his or her last breath, they are instantaneously in the presence of the Lord. Amen? That should bring us great comfort for those who go before us, and for when we arrive at that place, Paul says, listen, if I leave, if I breathe my last breath, I will be in the presence of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Which is better? Being with Christ is much better, he says, and then verse 24, but, but, you need me here. Philippian church, you need me here in my body. Paul knows that it is that, that if he is to be released from prison, then his life will result in further investment in the lives of the Philippians. He acknowledges that they need, for their progress in the faith, they need him to remain. He fully understands here the priority of disciple-making in his ministry. Where did he get that from? Why, why did it become so important for Paul that his ministry would be marked by both planting and evangel planting churches and evangelizing and, and seeing people come to faith and planting churches and seeing them grow and develop in their faith. He wasn't just happy with seeing churches spring up because of salvations in people's lives. He was content when he began to see those churches grow and progress in their faith and develop in their walk with the Lord. Where did he get it from? First and clearly, Jesus commanded it, right? All authority has been given to me, he says to his disciples after his resurrection. Therefore, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. You will not, church, you will not go do this task on your own. Paul knew that Christ was with him. Paul knew that Christ had commanded that not only would there be converts, but that he would see true faithful followers of Christ developed in these churches that were planted in his known world. Paul went about disciple-making because Christ had commanded it. Paul went about disciple-making because Christ had modeled it. Think about that. Christ had selected 12 men, 11 of which remained faithful to the end and who became leaders of the early church. You remember as he called forth in Galilee, he called Andrew and his brother Simon Peter and James and John and then others. But, but these four men, he looked at them and he said, listen, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You follow me, you imitate me, you observe my life, and I will equip you to invest your life, catch men for life. That's what he's saying. I'll teach you how to catch men and women for life. That they might come to know Christ, and their lives would forever be transformed. 
Think about what a mess Peter was. Peter was an old fisherman. Well, young fisherman, but he was a mess. We see that. But Christ kept pouring into Peter's life. Peter changed. Peter, Peter, think about it. Peter was the first one to, he walked out on the water. Peter was the first one to confess Jesus as the Christ. Peter was the one whom Christ said, you're going to deny me. And he said, no, no, no way. That's not going to happen. Peter was the first one to object to Christ washing his feet. Peter was the first one to pull the sword out in the garden, right, to defend Christ. Peter did deny Christ. Peter though, was restored and commissioned. And 50 days later from that encounter, we see Peter standing in Jerusalem and he preaches what we now call Pentecost. And 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. Amen? You think that was a life transformation for Peter? All in three years. Paul knew that story. Paul knew his own story. Paul knew how his life had been transformed by the gospel. And he wanted other people to experience the same depth of love, the same forgiveness, the same transformation in their life. Paul had experienced his Jewish teacher Gamaliel teaching him, rooting him in the knowledge of the Old Testament Paul had experienced after his conversion to faith, Barnabas stepping in and beginning to be a mentor and a coach and going with him, being sent out from Antioch on that first missionary journey and teaching Paul how to do it. Barnabas was the leader. And Paul's life is shaped and changed. What Paul learns in that exchange, Paul begins to model in his own life. Paul takes young men like Timothy, whom he called a son in the faith, and he pours his life. This is my son in the faith. He pours his life into Timothy, and he raises Timothy up to be equipped to be an elder, to be a pastor, to train and to equip others. And he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Timothy, find faithful men who are able to teach that they might teach others also. Paul said, Timothy, this, this great gospel that I have taught you and I have given to you and I have poured into your life, I want you to find faithful men, faithful individuals who are faithful followers of Christ, who will walk and will, will be entrusted with the deposit of the gospel and who will take it then to others. I want you to find faithful individuals and I want you to pour into their life. Raise them up so that they can then too do what I've done with you. And poured their life into others. Paul to Timothy to others to others. If I could only choose one verse in all of the scripture related to discipleship, it would likely be 2 Timothy 2 2. Right? And yes, I think that's Paul's way of saying, Timothy, this is how you're going to raise up elders and pastors, primary leaders in the church. But we can extrapolate from that. Paul says there should be generational discipleship happening. 25, 26 now years ago, I remember being challenged by a few men in my life, gain clarity about what the mission of your life is to be about. Beyond glorifying Christ, beyond walking with God, that's a given 
But what is God calling you to do specifically? How is your life and ministry going to be differentiated? What's that thing that's, that, that makes you who you are in the kingdom of God? I remember for weeks and weeks being on my knees praying and reading and reading and reading to keep this focused. The outworking of that, part of that was 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Clarity that God was calling me to be a man who would invest my life in other men and raise them up to be future leaders. Equip them to lead and serve in the local church. I had no idea as a young man, 22, 23 years old, what that meant and what that would entail. But I did know this. It would mean finding some other guys to pour my life into. Not knowing fully how to do it, but having observed it with my friend David in my life, I had some idea of what it might look like. So we're back to Paul. Paul says, listen, Christ commanded it. He modeled it. I experienced it. I modeled it. And now I have told you in the Word and other letters, I expect that you would do it as well. He writes to to Titus, a, a, a fellow young man in the faith, and he says, listen, he said, you ought to expect in the church there in Crete that older men would invest their life in younger men and older women would invest their life in younger women. That, that is how it is to be done in the life of the church. Paul had clarity that for him to live a Christ-centered life, it meant to have a ministry that was focused on disciple-making, the priority of disciple-making. Well, back to our passage, we hear Paul's clarity. He is indeed convinced that he will remain for the sake of the Philippian church. He's convinced that his continued investment in their lives will result in growth in their faith. Look again in verse 23. It's hard, again, for me. He says, for me to choose between the two, I want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is much better, but you need me here in my body. Since I am sure of this, I know I will stay with you to help you grow and have joy in your faith. I will stay with you, Paul says, because you need to grow in your faith. At this point in Philippians, Paul transitions really from his affairs of his imprisonment, what's taking place, his own heart, to their affairs. He's now consumed with their progress in the gospel. He desires that they will become mature in the faith. Well, the next several chapters, he begins to roll out what it means for the Philippians to progress in the faith, what needs to change in their life, how God will conform them perfectly to His Son's image. There are many passages we could go to in the balance of the book of Philippians, but look with me in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. This is sort of a pinnacle verse in relationship to the progress of our own faith in Christ. This is what Paul is concerned with for the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2, look in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, but by the way, right before that, he's just given this great, great illustration of Christ's humility and willingness to come and take on the form of humanity and die on the cross and be raised from the dead and, and then stated that he was a, that God, the Father, exalted him and that every knee would bow 
before Him and confess Him as Lord. Then he says in verse 12, Therefore, because of the light of this, that Christ is Lord, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul says, listen, I want you to progress in your faith. Paul says, listen, your faith is rooted and grounded in the gospel. It's a righteousness that is derived from Christ. It is not your own righteousness. You don't earn your way to heaven. Listen, if you're here this morning and you say, Michael, I don't know for sure that I'm a Christian. Matter of fact, I'm pretty certain I'm not a believer, but I'm curious. Hear the good news. God so loved the world, as we said earlier, that He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ. That if you would believe in Him, you would confess Him. Trusting that His death and His resurrection made a way for God the Father to be satisfied and for you to be forgiven and have eternal life. The Bible says believe. Paul writes, he says, if you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's not your works. You're saved by grace through faith, which is a gift to you by God. Believe that. I'm telling you this morning, I'm begging you, if you're here this morning and you don't know for certain that eternity in heaven with God is yours, trust Christ. Jesus, I believe you died for me and you rose again. Come, live in my life. Save me a place in heaven. I'm trusting you apart from any of my works. Save me a place in heaven. It's that simple, Michael? (laughs) Oh, yes. I got it as an eight-year-old boy. God made it clear. You too can understand. So when Paul says here, work out your salvation, he's not saying work for your salvation, but he's saying, listen, you've been saved in Christ. Apart from any work you've done, you are in Christ. But you need to grow in Christ. So when I read this verse... It it makes it clear to me there is a participation that you and I have in our faith development, in our growth in Jesus. There's some things we need to do, we need to step into, we we need to be in a community like this. Matter of fact, the Bible is clear that part of growth comes through active participation in worship gatherings and in Bible studies and in fellowship and dining at each other's table. That's a part of how we are shaped and formed in the church and in the body of Christ. Part of it is is through studying God's Word. Part of it is through worship as we've done this morning. Part of it is through private worship, through prayer, on and on. These are ways that we participate in our growth in Christ. Paul makes it clear that we are to put away the sin from our past and we're to walk afresh and new as a new man or woman in Christ. That is a part of our participation. But hear me, church. Paul makes clear even in this verse that our progress in the faith, our working out of our salvation, it's not even powered by ourselves. Amen? Because if it depends, listen, if my spiritual growth fully depended on me, I'd be a wrecked mess. Now I'm only a partially wrecked mess, right? But it is because God has empowered, and it is the power of the Word and the Spirit and the community of faith that is transforming me. And Paul says even here, He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who, what? Works in you. It's God who works. It's not me. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
Listen, every one of us needs to grow in our faith. And Paul says, listen, you need to lean into that. You don't need to lean out. You need to lean in and press in. You need to have a hunger and a thirst to grow in your faith in Christ. You don't need to be satisfied with just a ticket stamp to heaven. You need to want to be more like Christ, your brother, the Savior, the Messiah. You need to be more like Him. You need to want and crave that in your life. You need to be participating in putting to death the sin that is holding you back in life. Oh, but he says it's God who accomplishes that in our lives. Don't miss that part. For it is God who works in you, both to what? Will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen, there will be another day we'll come back to this passage, but give me 30 seconds here. I think this is encapsulated what that means. God expects that we're going to lean in in our in our, in our growth in Christ, right? We're going to do the things that he's told us in the word to do. Oh, but he, he's going to put a will within us, a desire for those things, a desire to be in a relationship with another brother or sister in Christ who will spur us on, a desire to put to death that lust or that greed or that pride or that whatever the sin is that's besetting you in life. God's going to put that will within us, a desire. And then he's going to work it out in us. Oh, listen, we have a responsibility, but at the end of the day, it is God who is going to accomplish this in us, brothers and sisters. It's God who's going to do this in us. Moms and dads, how do you pray for your children? Brothers and sisters who are investing in the lives of others, how do you pray? Oh, listen, verse 13 has changed my prayer life about people. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. I've just started praying, God, would you put that will within that individual? I can't make it happen. Would you put that desire in their hearts? And then would you work that out in their lives? Guess what? You can pray the same thing for yourself. You can pray the same thing for yourself. God, would you give me, like, I really want to be different, but, like, I really don't want to give up this. Would you give me the will to give this up? Would you give me the will to step in? Would you give me the will to ask someone else to step into my life and for me to begin to be transparent and let them see all the mess of my life? God, I don't, I don't want to do that myself, but would you put that will and desire within me? Oh, watch what God will do in your life, church. You'll begin to want those things, and he'll begin to work it out. He'll provide that person who will come along and walk with you in discipleship. As Paul works out this priority of disciple-making, we see throughout the book of Philippians him praying and teaching and correcting and encouraging. But ultimately, we see him pointing the disciples back to Christ. And when we are part of the disciple-making process, that's exactly what we need to be doing, pointing people back to Christ. It is Christ who works and wills in you to bring to fruition conformity to Jesus. He knows that ultimately their life transformation will occur because God has promised to will and to work in every believer's life. Yes, we do play a part, as we said, in that growth, but ultimately God will finally conform us to his full image in Christ. Paul's not only concerned with their progress in the faith, but as we read on, he is concerned with the Philippians experiencing greater joy in their faith. The theme of joy in Christian life permeates Paul's writings here in Philippians and throughout his other letters. Paul really has no category. 
Now, I know I'm about to tread on some stuff, so listen up. Paul really has no category for the Christian who is not ultimately, I'm not saying there's not ups and downs, but ultimately experiencing joy in their life. He sees joy as both a matter of decision, because repeatedly he instructs the Philippians to rejoice Even in the midst of their difficulty and suffering, he does that with other churches as well. He says, listen, rejoice. There is a decision to be made. There's a decision to have joy in your life. So make that decision. Rejoice in the Lord. So he says that. But he also sees joy as accompanying our salvation. He reminds us in Galatians 5 that the Spirit of God produces in the life of the believer a multitude of dispositions, including love, joy, peace. It's God who produces this in us. God will produce in our lives joy, even in the hardest times. I've seen some of the most joyful people be the people who are walking through some of the most difficult stuff in life, even life-threatening stuff, yet joy just seems to radiate from their lives. When I'm around people like that, it makes me be reminded it is the Spirit of God that can produce that in an individual's life. Paul knew that if he remained alive on earth, then he must be about aiding the Philippians in their walk with God in such a way that greater joy would result In their lives. I think often believers fail to experience the fullness of joy because of emotional turmoil that's happened in their life. Listen, most of us have walked through a valley. Some of our valleys have been darker and deeper than others. Granted. And that emotional turmoil has a way of robbing our joy, our Christian joy. Sometimes, The robbing of joy is because of the sin in our life. It just darkens us. It strips away the intimacy of relationship with Christ. There's a barrier. Listen, if you want to be a mature believer in Christ, you know what your prayer needs to be? Lord, Lord, please, if there be anything that is that is coming in between my relationship with you, if there is anything, any sin, any hope, any desire of my heart, God, things I don't even know, would you shine a bright light on that? Because I don't want anything or anyone to stand between you and I. No sin, which is joyful and enjoyable often for a moment, but it brings darkness in our life. It strips the joy of our faith. Whether it's emotional turmoil or sin or circumstances that seem to rip at our joy, most often at the root of all of that is self-dependence rather than Christ-dependence. If you press me and you say, Michael, why, why am I not joyful? Listen, there's all kinds of reasons, and there may be medical concerns, other things happening, but I, I would challenge each of us to really consider at the heart of it. Is there self-dependence over and against Christ-dependence? Paul says, listen, as you progress in your faith, I want to I see you grow and be more conformed to Jesus. And as you walk along life's journey, this earthly sojourn, I want to see the joy of your faith increase. 
Can I tell you, as your friend, as your brother, as your pastor, I want to see your joy increase. Listen, sometimes that joy increases through suffering. Sometimes that joy increases through blessings that are received in our lives. And sometimes it may be a mixture of both. But at the core of it, may we be found to be a joyful people. You want to talk about being a testimony and a witness to a lost world. Let the joy of Christ shine through you. Let the fruit of the Spirit be evidenced in your life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Paul says, listen, you will be very happy. That's a, probably a poor translation. It actually, others would say, you will be more joyful. It really means you will have a means, a ground for boasting in whom? In Christ, verse 26, in Christ Jesus. Your ability to boast, your ability to be filled with joy will increase. Your joy in Christ, he says in verse 26, it will increase when I am with you again. Paul wants to see their joy, their boasting in Christ, rise. And he says, listen, it's going to happen. And I can't wait to get there and be with you. Because even in that, you're going to be joyful because you've seen God at work in releasing me from prison and setting me free to do my work again. And I want you to find joy in your faith. Paul desires to see his brothers and sisters progress in their faith and increase in their joy. Paul is teaching us, listen, both our progress and our joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary single, singular passion. You want to progress in your faith? Christ needs to be the center of your life. You want to experience more joy in the faith? Christ needs to be at the center of your life. You and I, with Paul, need to say the most important thing about living is Christ. Oh, and it will produce greater joy and greater conformity to Jesus. So is Christ your singular passion? Listen, it'll make all the difference as to whether you progress in faith and are more joyful in this earthly life. Well, finally, upon evaluation, Paul says that he is convinced that he will remain alive. And his Christ-centered life, it will have a focus of seeing others grow in their faith and increase in that joy. So we ask, what would it look like in our lives in ideal form? What if we, along with Paul, said, yeah, we would love to leave and be with Jesus, but it's more important for us to remain that not only our faith would progress, but others' faith would progress as well. What would it look like, perhaps, in the immediate focus uh, on spiritual growth for our own lives and for others um, as we seek to invest our life in it. What would it look like for us to do that? What would it look like for us to be like Paul? So, with whom are you walking? Who are you investing your life in? Five months ago, back in September... Our church had a men's retreat. There were about nine men that joined us on that retreat. Mike Munden led that retreat that weekend. We were talking about what did it mean to be um, a man of God in our home? What did it mean to be a man of God, a disciple um, in, the, uh, in the marketplace? 
And what did it look like to be a man of God in the, in the church? Mike made a challenge to us that day, that Saturday morning. He said, part of what it looks like for us to be men in the local church is that we would invest our lives in other men. Ladies, it's the same statement to you all as well. What would it look like for you to be a godly woman in our midst? Part of it means investing your life in the lives of others. That, that their faith may progress, that their joy might increase, that they might have someone with whom to cry, someone with whom to lament, with someone with whom to pray, and with someone with whom will correct them and point them back to Christ in the midst of difficult moments. Oh my goodness. I walked away from that challenge. Honestly broken, church. I had looked back over my life for the last few years and I'd been running a hundred different directions. But I asked myself this question, with whom can I point that I deeply have invested my life in? I mean, really invested my life in. The list was pretty short, certainly compared to prior years of ministry. Oh, the corporate setting, of course, Bible studies, of course, my workplace at the seminary, of course, doctoral students, of course, where I invest my life. But I mean like one-on-one, getting in the nitty-gritty of life. I repented that day, and I went to a few men that were on that trip, and I said, I've wronged you in this, and I intend on changing, and I want to step up in that. Can I just tell you, that commitment is now beginning to work itself out. And at the end of every week, when I look back and I reflect on how well my life has been invested and what has been accomplished in my given week, I'm pretty task-oriented, if you didn't know that. But at the end of the week, where I find the greatest value, church, is those few hours a week that I'm spending with some other men. And you know what? I know what's going to happen. I think I'm going to invest in them and they're going to grow and they're going to receive. But it's already started happening. (laughs) I'm receiving from them. I'm growing. I'm being challenged. I'm being prayed for. I'm being encouraged. That's not the reason I'm doing it, but oh my church, listen to me. If I could this morning do nothing else but cast a vision for what discipleship can look like in this body in the coming year, part of that is really simple. Brothers, find some other brothers. Sisters, find some other sisters. Invite them into your life. You be open to being invited in their lives. Let's find a few people to walk with in 2017. The challenge is either invest in or invite in. But let us be a people who are disciple makers. Let us say with Paul that the most important thing about living is Christ. And how that's going to work out in this earthly sojourn is by helping others grow and increase in their joy in their faith in Christ. What would our church be like 12 months from today if we allowed our Christ-centered living to result in intentional disciple-making. I heard a testimony in the last week from one of our sisters in Christ in this fellowship. 
Of all places, I loved it. It was in, it was in a stewardship meeting. You got to love it as a pastor when stewardship meeting is talking about discipleship and missions. You should be happy, church. Yes? Money matters and finances matter. Oh, but to have a group of people around a table whose heart is for discipleship and missions, I walked away on cloud nine that night. But I heard this sister tell me about how 30 years ago, this church, as she came into it, another sister stepped in. We started walking and began to share how she was a transformed person because of that intentional relationship. Again, what could it look like if we either intentionally step in and invest or we intentionally invite another in for 2017? We will be a changed, transformed, encouraged, strengthened people. Amen? So the challenge is invest or invite. But let's see ourselves in a disciple-making relationship in 2017.